Welcome to the New Testament Review, where every episode we discuss an influential piece of New Testament scholarship. I'm Laura Robinson. And I'm Ian Mills. And we are PhD candidates at Duke University. This week we're discussing Margaret Mitchell's Paul's Letter to Corinth, the interpretive intertwining of literary and historical reconstruction. This was first published in Harvard Theological Studies in 2005. So this breaks our 20-year rule. Margaret Mitchell is a giant of New Testament scholarship on the Pauline epistles and particularly the Corinthian correspondence. Her classic piece of scholarship on this is definitely Paul and the Rhetoric of Reconciliation, which is a study of the literary composition, rhetorical structure of 1 Corinthians. And while we would have loved to cover that this week, it's finals week. (laughs) Furthermore, there's a number of important critical issues in the Corinthian correspondence that we wanted to cover first. We wanted to sort of introduce our audience to. And there's no one I'd rather talk about the Corinthian correspondence through than the work of Margaret Mitchell. So we selected a piece that we thought did a good job of introducing sort of the fundamental introductory critical issues with two Corinthians to sort of get us into this conversation. And it's part of the same project that Dr. Mitchell has been working on for, well, at least 30 years. Yeah, but. No, absolutely. So this is kind of a groundwork-laying episode. We're basically talking about a, a key issue in Corinthian scholarship that a lot of our lay listeners at home may not know. And that's the idea that when you look at your Bible and you see 2 Corinthians, what you're not looking at is one big letter that Paul wrote after 1 Corinthians. It could actually be a series of shorter letters that Paul wrote and were archived together into one big letter for the sake of preservation. This is not going to be an episode on Pauline chronology. So if you're looking for dating things, how this letter fits with Romans, how this fits alongside Acts, we're going to have to do other episodes on that. We have a John Knox episode we've already recorded on the topic. We're going to be focusing in here on just partition theories of 2 Corinthians. Mitchell begins her essay by talking about some of the other issues that are prominent in discussions of 2 Corinthians. Uh, Who were the opponents? Older scholarship said they were Gnostics. More recent scholarship speaks of them as enthusiasts or spiritual people. She's skeptical towards some of that as well. Um, Talks about some of the cultural issues in play. We're going to sort of skate over that and hone in very much on her very helpful introduction and schematization of partition theories. So there's more than one way to break down 2 Corinthians into different letters, and there's more than one way scholars have tried to do this. Um, of course, the classic pre-critical move is that it's just one big letter. Other scholars have seen that uh, two letters in this, one letter that contains chapters 1 through 9 and one that contains 10 through 13. Uh, there's also three-letter theories, and there's also five-letter th- theories. So there's more than one way to, to break 2 Corinthians down. But more to the point, why do we think there is more than one letter? And, you know, this is not something that we do with many of Paul's letters. We don't, no one thinks there are five different letters put in Galatians, for instance. So what, what's special about 2 Corinthians? Why do we think there's five different letters in here, or three or two, whatever the case may be? There's a few. One is that there are some pretty significant changes in tone throughout 2 Corinthians that are really surprising if this is just one big letter, that Paul would just radically change his tone really quickly. Another is itinerary. It's really hard to figure out where Paul is going, where he's been, and where he's going next in this letter. It seems to change a few times. The other is Titus's itinerary, where he's going and where he's been. The letter also makes references to other letters that we either don't have or are contained in this letter, particularly the letter of tears. We'll talk about this in a second. 
And the last one is repetitiveness, that Paul tends to say, say the same things over and over again. This is definitely the weakest of them. Yeah. And this might signify that he's actually saying the same thing in more than one letter rather than the same thing several times in the same letter. Laura is absolutely correct that we don't do this with all of Paul's letters. No one thinks Galatians is multiple independent works. But scholars do think Philippians, another letter, is made up of several different letters, and there's actually ancient testimony to this. Polycarp, our earliest discussion of the Philippian correspondence, says Paul sent multiple, plural, letters to Philippi, and scholars have partitioned out Philippians similarly into several letters. There's a really interesting article by Melissa Salu on how the Epistle of Laodiceans, a pseudepigraphical later letter, which is using Philippians very closely, may actually attest to one of these important letter divisions in Philippians. Moreover, this isn't something that's unique just to the New Testament or just to Christian letters. There are many letters in antiquity that seem to have been made up of many because of the way that material in the ancient world was archived. These would have been letters that, if they're fairly short, would have been on separate sheets of papyrus, but you don't really just want to have a stack of papyrus in a library. It makes more sense to copy multiple short pieces together into one larger scroll for the sake of storage and keeping track of these things. So if you have small scattered uh, correspondence that later Christians want to be able to copy down and even circulate to other churches, you don't just copy them as separate letters, you copy them down into one larger work. And there's some evidence from the letters of Pliny where these letters being copied alongside each other have been smashed into each other and combined into super letters. So there are ancient analogies to this sort of thing happening. Before we give you how different people have proposed reconstructing 2 Corinthians, we want to just sort of go over why anybody might think this about the letter in the first place. And the biggest, most glaringly obvious shift in the letter is that between chapters 1 and 9 and 10 and 13. In 1 through 9, as we're going to show you, Paul is generally happy with the Corinthians. He says, I have complete confidence in you, and he's overjoyed with them. Whereas in chapters 10 through 13, he is pissed. (laughs) And there's no gradual transition from one to the other. It is one verse to the next. Chapter 9, verse 15, and the very next verse, chapter 10, verse 1, mark perhaps the most sharp shift in tone in any of the Pauline letters. This has suggested to a lot of scholars that what we have here is an editorial seam. So here's chapter 9, verses 13 to 15. Uh, Through the testing of this ministry, you glorify God by your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your sharing with them and with all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God that he has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. I, myself, Paul, appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold to you when I am away. I ask that when I am present, I don't have to show boldness by daring to oppose those who think we are acting according to human standards. Sounds weird, right? (laughs) So Paul opens that sentence with an emphatic, I myself, Paul, and closes that sentence with a threat. There are people that he is calling out who he says are accusing him of something that he needs to, that he hopes that he doesn't have to show boldness and aggression to these people. Whereas in nine, he's thankful and he's happy and he's celebrating their generosity. Like what happened between those two sentences? Exactly. But if you're not persuaded by that scene, let's zoom out a little bit and it actually gets a lot, lot worse. 
Yeah. Here are sections from uh, chapters 1 to 7 where we see Paul at his more positive. Chapter 4, verse 12. Death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. 7, verse 4. I often boast about you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with consolation. I am overjoyed in all our affliction. Uh, chapter 7, verse 16. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. I have complete confidence in you. Compare this to chapter 13, verse 5, where he says, Test yourselves. Did you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. He is suggesting that when the Corinthians test themselves, they're not going to find that they're Christians. <laughs> but there's life in them in chapter 4, and that he has complete confidence in them in chapter 7. Uh, here's Paul again at his more angry in the second half of the letter. Here's uh, chapter 10, verse 11. It's basically a threat. Let people understand that what we say by letter when we are absent, we will also do when we are present. <laughs> I would be scared if I got that. And then a more sarcastic, Paul. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you submit to it readily enough. The saying that the Corinthians have happily accepted a different Jesus, a different gospel, and a different spirit. And here's Paul with more of the same thing, this very sardonic, frustrated tone with uh, w w with the way that the Corinthians uh, have acted. Uh, for you gladly put up with fools being wise yourselves. For you put up with it when someone makes slaves of you or preys on you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or gives you a slap in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. So we have this big picture general contrast. In 1 through 7, he has complete confidence. He's overjoyed with them. We're going to see some more evidence of this when we talk about travel plans, that in this section, he's looking forward to seeing them, compared to 10 through 13, where Paul is threatening and sarcastic and, and isn't even sure that these people are still Jesus followers. He says they've accepted another gospel, another Jesus, and another spirit. This contrast should set off alarm bells. Yeah, so that's weird. Sounds like there's more than one letter. Another reason why people think that 2 Corinthians is a composite document is that Paul makes references to letters in 2 Corinthians that we don't seem to have unless they're part of this larger letter. Uh, one example of this is the so-called letter of tears or a letter that Paul wrote while he was crying. He makes two references to it in 2 Corinthians in passages where, for the most part, he's pretty upbeat and happy. Uh, one of these is in chapter 2, verses 3 to 4. And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who have made me rejoice. For I'm confident about all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. But I wrote you out of much distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know of the abundant love I have for you. So here's this letter to a reference that Paul wrote uh, when he was really sad for the purpose of talking to the Corinthians and uh, in bridging this gap in their relationship. Also, within the happy first half of the letter, uh, we get a second reference. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I do regret it, for I see that I grieved you with that letter, though only briefly. Now, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you felt a godly grief, so that you were not harmed in any way by us. So, we have here happy, positive Paul, who likes the Corinthians, says, I sent this really hard letter that grieved you in order to get you to repent. And you did, which is great. So people have asked what this letter might be. Then Mitchell, along with, at least for today's purposes, the two of us, are going to suggest that this angry letter 
that brought them to repentance may in fact be the latter half of 2 Corinthians, or at least part of it. We'll get into that in a second. But this lost letter may not in fact be lost, but be contained in 2 Corinthians 10 through 13. Absolutely. So this tonal change is more or less undeniable. There's a big shift here. But to make an argument for partition, it would be nice to have something a little more solid to sink your teeth into. Are there any more clear contradictions, or not so much contradictions, but references to the same events from clearly different chronological perspectives? And Mitchell is going to suggest that there are a handful of such things that more clearly delineate these letters as coming from different points in time. So that we're going to look, we're going to focus on three particular instances of this. That is, those concerning Timothy's travel, those concerning the state of the collection. We think this is the weakest argument. And Paul's travel plans, um, which is rather under-discussed by Mitchell, but we're going to put a little more time into it because we think it's terribly interesting. Yeah. Uh, so the first of these issues is the sending of Titus. Chapter 12 recounts an event that seems to be happening in chapter 8, which would suggest that these are, these are two different letters that are sent at two different times. So chapter 12, 18 says, I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Here we have in chapter 8, Titus not only accepted our appeal, but since he is more eager than ever, he is going to you of his own accord. With him, we are sending our brother who is famous among all the churches for his proclaiming the good news. It sounds like a letter that Titus would have with him explaining what he's doing, that Paul has sent Titus and this brother who's an excellent preacher together. And then in chapter 12, we have a reflection on this event that Titus and the brother went together. If I can pick up a later verse in chapter 8, it says, Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and our reason for boasting about you. So 8 looks like it's being sent with Titus, to the Corinthian church. He's saying, you know, Titus and this other guy who's unnamed, great people, accept them, show them you're welcome. So this may be one division, uh, but, and now we're getting into some of these why people think there's more than just two letters. Um, There's yet another possible division here. That is in chapter seven, which I remind you, we are suggesting is part of the nice letter that may come after the the sad (laughs) later letter. Paul is saying that he has received Titus back from the Corinthians with a good report about the Corinthians, and this makes him really, really happy. Uh, God consoled us by the arrival of Titus, and not only his coming, but also by the consolation with which he consoled us about you and told us of your longing and so on and so forth. So it looks, surrounding Titus, that we may have actually three different points of time or three different perspectives. We have him being sent in chapter 8 with a recommendation and a command that he be welcomed. We have a retrospective in verse 12, I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. And then we have in chapter 7, perhaps a report of Titus having returned from Corinth back to Paul in Macedonia with a good report. Yeah. So, so yeah. So the point there is just that Titus can't possibly be going, have gone, and come back in the same letter. These seem to be three different events. Right. So the exact divisions at this point we're not paying a lot of attention to, but there does seem to be some tension in exactly where Titus is, whither Titus is going, and whence Titus has come. Yep. So this brings us to the issue of redundancy. Uh, And this is the idea that there has to be a division between chapters 8 and 9. Chapters 8 and 9 both deal with the question of the collection of the money that Paul is taking up to send to Corinth. Uh, And chapter 9 
brings up the, the collection as though this is a new topic that Paul is talking about the first time, even though it's already been talked about in chapter 8. Lauren, I think this is the weakest of the arguments. We've already found a way to divide between 9 and 10 into two big letters. And then we found a reason that maybe 8 needs to be divided, divided from 12. Um, so then you got three letters. And now this is going to be another argument to divide 8 from 9. You decide how compelling you think this is. So here's how chapter 8 ends. Uh, it's appropriate for you who began last year not only to do something, but even to desire to do something, now to finish doing it so that your eagerness may be matched by completing it according to your needs. At this point, it seems like the collection has been begun, but it's not done yet. Here's chapter 9. Um, but I know of your eagerness, which is the subject of my boasting about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. The argument is that chapter 8 describes a collection that has been begun, but it's not done yet. And then chapter 9 has the collection in more of a state of completion, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. The issue, I think, here is that... So Paul says that he's been boasting about this to Macedonia, that Achaia has been ready since last year. But he doesn't say that this actually happened. He just says that he's been boasting about it. So it's totally plausible that these can be the same letter. And Paul has been bragging about this awesome collection he's going to get, and now he's trying to light a bit of a fire to get this thing completed so he can stop boasting about it and actually deliver on what he said. Elsewhere, he worries that if he brings the Macedonians with him to Corinth, they will discover that the collection is not, in fact, complete. And he says, both you will be embarrassed and I will. So it looks to me, and I think Laura's on the yeah. same page here, that Paul has been a little bit dishonest. Or at least rhetorically excessive. He's been boasting <laughs> as if something was complete when it in fact wasn't. Um, yeah. The way to save him from this dishonesty is to partition 8 and 9. Mitchell places a lot of weight on the redundancy of 9-1, that he's raising this topic anew. So you can do this, but... Yeah, but it's not totally necessary. It seems like 8 and 9 could totally be part of the same letter if you think that the issue is more that Paul has, uh, Paul has overpromised Macedonia. And this brings us to the last issue, travel plans. Uh, this is not a big focus of Mitchell, but we think it's worth talking about because you can see some of the real seams in 2 Corinthians in this issue. Um, in the first half of 2 Corinthians, Paul is apologizing for having canceled a trip to Corinth and justifying why he didn't do this. Instead of going to Corinth, he says, he wrote a letter instead because he was really upset with them. They were really upset with the, him. He didn't want to have this big unpleasant visit. So instead he sent a letter so that they wouldn't make each other more angry. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1, since I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you may, might have a double favor. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on to Judea. But I call on God as witness against me. It was to spare you that I did not come again to Corinth. So this is in the happy letter, and we know Paul has already been reconciled to these Corinthians because Titus came back and with this happy message. Um, he is writing this from Macedonia, and he's coming to visit them again, the Corinth, in the post-Macedonian visit, which he's expecting to be happy. And he is defending having canceled a pre-Macedonian visit to Corinth in order to spare them from his wrath. Yeah. Clearly, there's some sense of anxiety about a broken promise here. Uh, in chapter, Paul says, uh, Was I vacillating when I said I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to ordinary human standards, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? 
So yeah, Paul is trying to work out this issue that he said he was going to go to Corinth on his way to Macedonia, and he did not. The really important verse in the happy letter, happy part of the letter, for showing the seam, though, is 2 Corinthians verses 1 and 3. So I made up my mind not to make you another painful visit. And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. So, implied here is that when he wrote, he still expected that he was going to visit. And he wrote in a way to bring them to repentance. And he was, at this point, very upset with them. So each of those details, we're going to argue in a second, sound like a description of the angry part of the letter of 2 Corinthians, of 2 Corinthians 12 and 13. Um, An angry letter that is anticipating an angry visit that brought them to repentance, after which Paul cancels his visit. Yeah. So the planning for an angry visit shows up in chapter 12, verse 20. Uh, Paul says, For I fear that when I come, so he hasn't come yet, Uh, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may not find me as I wish. So Paul is planning to come, but it's going to be ugly. They're going to fight. Yeah. It says the same thing again in chapter 13. This is the third time I am coming to you. I warned those who sinned previously and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present in my second visit, that if I come again, I will not be lenient. So there's a visit in the future, and they're going to fight about it. And contrast this with the tone in 2 Corinthians 7. We've already talked about this passage, but in 2 Corinthians 7, he says that Titus has come back from Corinth with a great report about them, and Paul is rejoicing. I mean, he literally says, so that I rejoiced still more. Putting these things alongside each other is really, really difficult. The idea that Paul is, in the latter, in the angry part, planning a really angry visit and sending an angry letter ahead, versus in the first half, He's happy with them, and he apologizes for missing that angry visit, but says he did it to spare them, and talks about having sent a letter instead to get them to repent. This has been a quick overview of just the themes that we see in 2 Corinthians and why we think these are different letters. As we can see, that there are events that seem out of order, Uh, there are are reflections on events that seem to have taken place at different periods of time. So all this is to say... There's more than one letter in 2 Corinthians. And now let's take a quick look at where Margaret Mitchell thinks those letters start and stop. Great. Um, okay. Mile high flyover here. The first letter is an early lost letter that's referenced in 1 Corinthians 5.9. Then we get 1 Corinthians. Then we get 2 Corinthians 8, an administrative letter. And then 2 Corinthians 2.14 through 7.4, a letter of self-defense. Then we get the letter of tears, 2 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13, 10. So that's the angry bit we were talking a lot about. And then we get the letter towards reconciliation. So hold on to your hats here. <laughs> this is 2 Corinthians 1, 1 through 2, 13, 7, 5 through 16, and 13, 11 through 13. Did you guys write that down? Yeah, Laura and I, gonna, <laughs> Laura and I have a few issues with this, but right. let's keep going. And then the last letter is 2 Corinthians 9, the final fundraising letter. So Mitchell then spent some time on the linguistic connections between the administrative letter, 2 Corinthians 8, and the letter of tears, which has to be earlier than the later happier letters, and argues that this shows some sort of temporal proximity um, to justify putting them in these sequence. Um, The same partitioning of letters had been proposed by Bornkman, but she is moving 2 Corinthians 8 into this earlier spot. It's not going to be possible for us orally to go through 
all these chronological things and to go through exactly how you justify partitioning things out into five different letters and and especially this letter towards reconciliation which picks little pieces um, out of different chapters and puts them together. I'm inclined to view this as sort of a bit hubristic. Sure, something like this is possible, but the idea that we could actually reconstruct it at this remove without any sort of external controls, I think is really, really difficult to justify. So we're going to instead focus on the exegetical payoff this has for Mitchell. That is, what does she get from this? Yeah, so the first one is an explanation for what made Paul and the Corinthians fight in the first place. Uh, we've talked a lot about the letter of tears and all this stuff. And, you know, it, it's not really intuitive when you just read First and Second Corinthians back to back why they're fighting so much. If we put Second uh, Corinthians 8 in conversation with First Corinthians, we actually start to get a little sense of what might be making them so angry. First Corinthians 16 mentions that Paul assumes that the Corinthians will pick delegates who will go to Jerusalem and deliver the offering there for him. When I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve of and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. And then if we look at 2 Corinthians 8, which Mitchell argues happened right after, um, with them we are sending your brother who we have often tested and found eager in many matters, but who is now more eager than ever because of his great confidence in you. So Paul is picking people himself to go get this uh, this offering and send it to Jerusalem. And this could raise some red flags for Corinth, that um, Paul has made a really big deal out of the fact that he doesn't charge money for, uh, for preaching the gospel. And now they're just supposed to hand over a bunch of money to him and his, his associates. This could possibly be something that caused a lot of disagreement. So th- this sounds like not a very big deal, but Mitchell draws attention to who is delivering this offering. In 1 Corinthians... It's delegates from the Corinthian church who they seem to have selected. Whereas in 2 Corinthians, Paul assumes that his people that he has selected will be carrying this offering. And Mitchell suggests that this sounds like Paul arrogating to himself this privilege that he had promised would be given to the Corinthians. This is Paul raising his own authority and his own role in the giving of a gift from the Corinthian church to Jerusalem. And Mitchell connects this up with the controversy over letters of recommendation in 2 Corinthians 3, that Paul seems to be upset that the Corinthians want letters of recommendation. In defense of Mitchell's reading, 1 Corinthians 16 does say Paul would offer letters of of recommendation to go with the Corinthian delegates, and this issue being raised again. But In 2 Corinthians 3, the letters of recommendation seem to be demanded for Paul. So for Mitchell, she says this is the Corinthians demanding where Paul gets off in taking this new authority into himself. Laura and I aren't totally persuaded by this. There's some problems here. Yeah, so so the the order does make sense. It just seems as though the question of um, who's going to collect this money does not come up that much from letter to letter. And and there's also just, uh, when we look at the broader Pauline corpus, it's not really a huge surprise that Paul's having conflict with his churches. Uh, A lot of times when you look at Paul's letters and where Paul has opponents or has uh, problems with his churches, it's because someone else has come in to this church who is skeptical about Paul and is teaching something that Paul is not a fan of. Uh, This is what happens in Galatians. Uh, It seems like this might be alluded to in Philippians. Definitely see in 2 Corinthians that there are super apostles uh, or people, 
that's what Paul calls them at least, these other apostles that uh, the Corinthians are unfavorably comparing Paul to uh, with, with them. So it seems totally plausible that this could be the cause of uh, uh, of disagreement that there are these opponents involved that have soured the Corinthians on Paul and his message. Yeah, and specifically on her reading of Second Corinthians 8 and the sending of Titus and others to the church at Corinth, it's not said clearly that the purpose of Titus coming here is to then take the offering and go to Jerusalem with it. If, in fact, the 1 Corinthians 7 reference to Titus having returned to Paul is a reference to this same event, which Mitchell doesn't make that point, she may not actually hold that opinion, then Paul's sending of these delegates to Corinth may not be the event described in 1 Corinthians 16. It's not made explicit, at least, that these people are playing the role that Paul had promised to the Corinthians. And the letters of recommendation seem to be part of a bigger debate, as Laura just said, over Paul's apostolic bona fides, which runs through the Pauline correspondence, uh, and perhaps his relationship to the Jerusalem church, which is a matter of grave consequence and actually tied in to this offering. Paul wants the church to accept his offering because to accept an offering from him would to be to show approval. We're getting off topic yep, here. It's a um, issue. But this contrast between 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8 is one of the exegetical payoffs of Mitchell's specific chronology. So we're going to walk through the events in order that Mitchell thinks happened to explain the uh, the ebbs and flows in Paul's relationship with the Corinthians. So the first letter in the correspondence is the letter that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5.9. Paul apparently said the Corinthian Christians should separate themselves from sexually unethical people. Possible response? The Corinthians don't really seem to understand and they need Paul to clarify exactly what he means and why they should do it. So then we get 1 Corinthians as printed in our canon. This letter, of course, is a clarification of this earlier letter. He says so in 1 Corinthians 5. It treats a number of ethical issues, calls for unity uh, between different factions in the church, and inaugurates this collection to be brought to Jerusalem. It's not totally clear how the Corinthians responded to this, says Mitchell, um, but they may have seen it as a letter of self-recommendation and been concerned about some contradictions between chapters 9 and 16. Uh, the third letter is 2 Corinthians 8. This is where Paul starts to talk more about fundraising. And this is where Mitchell sees the, the problem emerging, that Corinth gets this letter and feels, and feels usurped, that Paul said they were going to be able to pick delegates, and then he did it himself. Um, and then for Mitchell, the next letter is the letter of self-defense. This is 2.14 through 7.4. And this is a letter of self-defense of his own apostolic authority. Um, and in response to this, there is a second visit of Paul, and the Corinthians are embarrassed. So after this unpleasant visit uh, is 2 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13, 10. This is the letter of tears. After the Corinthians get this, they welcome Titus. They're excited to see it, him, but uh, they're still not totally sure they can trust Paul. And then we get the uh, smorgasbord letter. <laughs> This is 2 Corinthians 1, 1 through 2, 13, 7, 5 through 16, 13, 11 through 13. I don't even know why I bother reading that, except <laughs> to give you the impression that this is little bits and pieces. This is some of the happiest notes in the letter. You've probably picked up on that, even as Laura and I were describing the initial data and the seams, that we don't quite buy this exact reconstruction. Um, but this is the, the happy letter, and when the Corinthians get it, presumably they're happy too. 
Um, yeah. As reflected in the final letter. And the last letter is 2 Corinthians 9. Uh, this is the fundraising letter. Paul tries one more time, and the, the uh, Corinthians contribute, and the whole thing ends quite happily. Right. I think the important accomplishment of this article is sort of laying out in a really helpful and clear way the different impetuses or irritants that get scholars to partition out the letter. Mitchell herself thinks her biggest innovation is placing 8 and 9 at different points in Paul's mission. So she has 8 following immediately after 1 Corinthians and 9 being the last letter. In any case, what we wanted to accomplish here was not to lay out a schema through which one must read 2 Corinthians, but to raise this issue of letter partitioning and the different problems in reading through 2 Corinthians as if it were one coherent letter. Yeah. It's a lot of numbers, though. It feels like we're doing math. You know, and if a lot of this, if you guys had a hard time picking up some of this, the uh, the numbers and the references as we went along, you know what? Just pick up 2 Corinthians and read through it and see where you can spot the seams. And uh, tweet at us if you spot something interesting. And uh, we'd love to talk to you guys about it. There is so much more scholarship on this issue that we haven't had the time or interest to go over for the sake of the podcast. Uh, we get that we probably didn't talk about your favorite proof text or your favorite scholar who argues that we can reconcile all this together. Even people who want to have one coherent letter, uh, figures like Duke's own Douglas Campbell, recognize the strength of some of these inconsistencies and have to come up with other ways to account for Paul's drastic shifts in tone and perspective on issues and end up inventing other visits and other letters to sort of explain around this. So we hope this sort of just brings you into the conversation on 2 Corinthians yeah, and is helpful for seeing what critical scholarship on the Pauline letters looks like. Yeah. All, All right. right. Thanks. Thanks. So Ian's wife says we have to be nicer when we ask for reviews. I'm not allowed to yell at you anymore. Well, we love hearing your reviews, and uh, when you guys leave reviews and say what you think about the show, we really love this, but we actually have another request for you guys. Yeah, five-star reviews, they don't hurt, but a lot of you have already done that. Thank you. How about instead, you share our podcast on the social medias? Every time you guys share a show or an episode of it on Twitter or Facebook, uh, more people get to find the show and find out about us, and uh, more people listen, which is really exciting for us. So pick your favorite episode. It may not have been this one. We get that. Pick your favorite episode and post about it on Facebook, about why we're wrong, or why we're right, or why people should engage with us. Or why our voices sound weird. Yeah, that too. (laughs) Hey, Jody, was that nicer? You can find more about us um, on Twitter at Newt, N-E-W-T, review, or email us at newtestamentreview at gmail.com. 